Hello everyone, this is Michael speaking, and welcome back to Around Serie A in 20 Days, the podcast. Today's chapter is uh, about halfway through the book now, which is quite nice, and it's called The State Strikes Back. Much like the chapter from yesterday, it's not about a match, but is more some background information for y'all. So I hope you enjoy it. It was, um, to be honest, it was massively depressing to do all the research for, but hopefully the chapter isn't massively depressing for you. As always, michaelnimmo.com is the website for all your Michael Nimmo needs. Uh, a couple of weeks ago I wrote a short story. I would be really pleased if you could have a look at that. I really enjoyed writing it and I hope you enjoy reading it. In the next couple of days there'll be another blog up as well, because tomorrow makes my 7th anniversary in Italy. Woo! It's been quite nice, really. The sun is really, really shining today. It's a big blue sky out my window. So I'm going to do this quickly so I can then get outside and burn myself to a crisp. Enjoy! The State Strikes Back. New Equipment, Mentality and Powers. In 1978, the Divisione Investigazioni Generale Operazioni Speciale, or DIGOS, similar to the Special Branch, was formed, giving policing and the forces of order a new face, not to mention new equipment. They took over the responsibilities from previous branches that had dealt with political or stadia-based public order requirements, and regarding the latter, had a different mentality. Gone were the reactionary days of thinking of football fans as simple hooligans. They now came to be treated as a subversive phenomenon that needed to be repressed by force. In order to do this, they were kitted out with new uniforms, police dogs, armoured vehicles and helicopters. In other words, the old-style policemen had been transformed into a kind of soldier. As the journalist Carlo Bonini wrote in his book ACAB, one officer declared that when a hundred odd ultras are lined up 50 metres ahead of you with iron bars, chains, paper bombs and knives, I retain the right to make them so scared that they can't even think about attacking us without leaving us their bones. Italy isn't a stylish boot, it's a jackboot. Force was one option. Then, following the Heysel Stadium disaster, the banning order, DASPO, was passed into law in 1989. This would ban anyone who had been warned, charged or convicted of any crime in relation to a sporting event. In order to ensure they didn't try to sneak back to the stadia, anyone with a DASPO had to report to a police station during the match. However, as the issuing of a DASPO doesn't require the receiving party to have been charged and found guilty in court of any particular crime, many argue that this power is unconstitutional. The lawyer, Antonio Contucci, has become something of a spokesman for Ultra's rights, and has this to say about how it works. The DASPO, as the Constitutional Court has said many times, isn't anti-constitutional, but it does prevent various anomalies. For example, this measure isn't handled by a judge, but rather by the police. Here's an example. A mafioso can only be subject to a restriction order if a judge rules on it. Meanwhile, a supporter can be judged by the police. In the rest of Europe, that would be a case for the magistrature, but not in Italy. There are some politicians who are sensitive to the problems that the DASPO creates, but their voices are lost in the general mediocrity of the majority of politicians, of which many don't even know when America was discovered. Another scheme that the authorities have imposed on supporters is the Tessera del Tifoso. For Brits of a certain age, 
This is very similar to the supporters' ID cards that Margaret Thatcher proposed in the late 80s. In the UK, this idea was dropped, but in 2010, the Tessera was implemented in Italy. The idea is that if you want to buy a ticket for a stadium, you need to present this card which confirms your identity. Given that to buy a ticket you already need to show ID, all tickets must have your name on them, which is, at least in theory, then checked and confirmed with ID at the turnstiles. It seems to simply be another way of collecting data on fans. In this way, anyone with a DASPO is automatically placed on a blacklist for buying tickets. It generally only applies to people buying tickets for away matches or season tickets, but when I was getting ready to go down to Naples, I found that even just to buy a normal ticket for the Corva, I needed to have the card. A couple of clubs have tried to add value to the card. For example, Inter offer a 10% discount in their store for Tessera holders. However, a number of high-profile people have criticised the system, including Michel Platini, who said, I don't like the Tessera, and Contucci, the lawyer we heard from a moment ago, who said, this isn't a Tessera del Tifoso, this isn't a Tessera del Tifoso, but from the Viminale, which is the headquarters of the Italian Interior Ministry. On the one hand, the clubs can manage their clients or fans, but on the other, it needs authorization from the state, like a weapons license. He goes on to add that if you've received a DASPO at any point in the past, you'll never again be allowed to get the Tessera. He is aware that clubs may want to keep lists of their fans for their own business ends, as happens in many other European countries. But to this, adds, the difference is that in those countries, the clubs are the owner of the stadia, so they decide who they want to let in. The authorization doesn't come from the state. For example, in England, season tickets are managed by the owner, and due to the price, they've replaced the working-class supporter with the well-off. I don't like this tool of turbo-capitalism, but the ultras would accept this. A number of politicians have also reacted against the Tessera, but as we've already seen, supporters are sometimes used as political footballs, so the extent that they're simply playing to the crowd and looking for easy votes is questionable. A difficulty with the Tessera, beyond the feeling that the state is too involved, is that in conjunction with DASPOs, it might stop people from entering the stadium, but it doesn't stop them from going near it. Almost all of the problems and large-scale incidences of violence that have happened in the last 30 years haven't happened in the stadia, but rather outside. Therefore, the Tessera, while giving the state further power over who can and can't watch football, doesn't solve the problem of trouble. It simply blocks it from entering an enclosed, and therefore theoretically more controllable area, the stadium, and moves it outside to an area much more challenging to manage in a security sense, the streets. Not to mention the ammunition it supplies to those who feel the police and the state are the enemy. Personally, I don't really have a problem with having the Tessera. I'm not fond of what it stands for and the information it gives the powers that be, but I have it because I needed one a few years ago and wanted to watch matches more than I objected to its existence. An alternative exists in the form of the voucher, but this essentially amounts to the same thing. It just doesn't have the baggage that the Tessera del Tifoso carries. On all my trips around Italy's stadia, I asked supporters what they thought about it. The majority were disdainful and against the card, such as Mirko from Kievo, who said this. It's a sore point in Italy, in the sense that this scheme is trying to kick the people out that have written the history of the stadia. Us Northsiders, the group of Kievo supporters that I'm a member of, made the decision to sign up for it, not because we want to be controlled, 
but because we're convinced that the battle has to be fought on the front line, by which I mean inside the stadium. If the idea is to contest this system from outside, if they kick us out, introduce absurd and repressive laws, make life difficult and stop us from going to away matches, well, that's a battle only they'll win. Prima Durante Dopo, which I don't think was his given name at birth from Cagliari, disagreed. It's a prevarication. Why do I have to register just to go to the stadium? And why does it only exist in Italy, when the tickets already have our names on them? That seems good enough for me. Other supports have folded and accepted it, but by doing that, we, as supporters of whichever team, won't achieve anything. And Massimo, from Genoa, explained why he didn't want one. It's symbolic of the change in supporters, Corvi, and football in general. It's a sacrifice of passion in the name of business. And last but not least, it's a form of limitation of our personal freedom. This is a country that lets convicted criminals stay in Parliament, but keeps an accused fan of going to the stadium for years while his investigation drags on. It's useless and damaging, and for as long as I can avoid it, I will. Not everyone was so negative, but the vast majority of people I asked about the Tessera didn't see it as helping stadium security, and felt it was just another attack on supporters. The question of stadium security is a complicated one. As we've already heard, the stands are generally lawless, and seem to have been left to the supporters who populate them to do what they will. Peter Lamborn Wilson would describe the Corva as a T8Z, Temporary Autonomous Zone i.e. an area that falls outside of the control of the state. As he wrote under the pseudonym Hakim Bey, the last bit of earth unclaimed by any nation-state was eaten up in 1899. Ours is the first century without terra incognita, without a frontier. Nationality is the highest principle of world governance. Not one speck of rock in the South Seas can be left open. Not one remote valley, not even the moon and planets. This is the apotheosis of territorial gangsterism. Not one square inch of earth goes unpoliced or untaxed, in theory. It's those final words that set Stadia apart from other locations. The stadium has traditionally been, at least on a Sunday afternoon, a place where the state has limited reach at best. A police or steward presence here would not be warmly received, but by and large, the stands regulate themselves. Whether this is because the undesirables have been kept out is open for debate, as barring a couple of cases, it's unusual to find serious fan-on-fan violence among supporters of the same team. Far more frequent, as we've already heard, are incidences of violence between rival sets of supporters and the police. As Massimo de Genuano said, the Tessera del Tifoso strikes me as being a stocking horse for the commercialisation, sanitisation and gentrification of Stadia as owners strive to emulate the English model, which is more money from a more diverse group of consumers with a larger spending power, i.e. businessmen and families. Crucially, as things stand, I can't see that that plan will work in Italy, as the stadium themselves are not up to standard. Football in England has been able to make quantum leaps in terms of its earning power, thanks in part to the renovation and building of new stadia. In these new stadia, there are more executive boxes, more VIP sections, and as a result, more money. In Italy, there is a different reality, as almost all of the stadia are not owned by the clubs, but instead by the local councils. I remember the first matches I went to see at the stadium here in Genoa. The streets were full of people wearing scarves in the team's colours. 
I was excited because the Italian match experience was a world away from that in Scotland. And at that time, I was simply a football fan without any particular allegiance. Then, lined up on corners, holding their riot shields were dozens of carabinieri, some with machine guns slung around their shoulders. A good few of them would just look at people, obviously pretty bored, while others smoked and chatted. This was an intimidating sight for a lad from Edinburgh. The only British police I'd seen with guns were either in films or the bill. Being confronted with this new reality was a bit of a shock at first, but over time I stopped noticing them. Then my dad came to visit one time and was surprised to see one of them strolling down the street by himself and smoking. At first I didn't understand why he'd be surprised. That's, that's normal, no? He reminded me that no, at least not in Britain. The police aren't allowed to smoke on duty and certainly aren't allowed to walk about alone with their guns. Now, it's not fair to draw glib comparisons between the UK and Italy on this subject, but while the two countries have many similarities, differences are also evident. And in the style of policing, some of these differences are at their clearest. Post-Hillsborough, Taylor Report and the subsequent redeveloping of Stadia, policing changed to reflect the new kinds of fans who would go week in, week out. There were still those who had gone beforehand, but now that Stadia had become more family-friendly and civilised in terms of their facilities, they started to attract a new kind of customer, perhaps the saddest thing that I've written in this chapter, seeing football as a product. Ugh. As a result, the police strategy had to change. No longer were the punters animals, lowlifes and hooligans, but they were paying customers, often paying quite a lot. The policing of football matches in the UK has become more preventative rather than reactive. Certainly at Easter Road, perhaps mindful of the horror that's waiting out on the pitch for the fans, the police are generally helpful. No longer do they move in large groups, gripping their truncheons, now they go around in twos, acting more as crowd control rather than enforcers. Subtle moves have changed the general perception, or at least their matchday behaviour, from being defensive and ready for trouble, to being what they should be there for, making society work better and more safely. While it would be naive to expect any sudden change in attitudes and atmospheres, a shift over time could pay dividends here in Italy. One thing is for sure, us versus them doesn't do either party any good in the long term. In the summer of 2013, the FIGC, Italy's FA, introduced a new law that they claimed would keep them in line with UEFA regulations. This new law, commonly known as Discriminazione Territoriale, forbids any flag, banner or song that denigrates another country, region or city. When asked about this, UEFA's president Michel Platini said, UEFA only recognises the concept of discrimination, and then every federation can decide if they want to do more on a case-by-case -case basis. This idea of territorial discrimination is something I've only just learned about. It's an Italian concept. So, UEFA gave the FIGC an inch, but in the eyes of many people in Italy, the governing body then took a foot. But before we look at that, what is territorial discrimination? The FIGC's norms use territorial discrimination as a catch-all term that includes racism, but also any insults on a national and local level. Want to suggest that Milan is a foggy city? Technically, you'd fall foul of the rules, even if it is true. Say that Foggia's a shithole, even if the finding, if not the exact wording, is backed up by research by the newspaper Il Sole 24 Ore, which is kind of like the Financial Times here, Foggia came 101st out of 107 towns and cities ranked for their quality of life in 2012. Also, I've been there. It's a toilet. 
technically, you'd be breaking the rules again. Of course, football supporters aren't always paragons of taste and decency, so often these insults are more unpleasant, and are almost always directed towards Naples and Neapolitans. Songs normally take the form of suggesting that folk from the Amalfi Coast have cholera, or calls for Mount Vesuvius to erupt and, I quote, wash the city with fire. Despite having this quite precise target, they often take place when Napoli aren't even playing. For example, when Juventus played Milan in October 2013, a discriminatory chant could be heard in the second half, for which the Rossoneri were fined €50,000 and told that their next game would be played behind closed doors. In mid-February 2014, Roma hosted Sampdoria, with the Corva already closed for previous infractions. Then, during the match, the same old songs and chants were heard from the remaining stands. Again, Roma were fined, this time for €80,000, and told that another section of the stadium would be closed. Depending on the gravity of the offence, the club whose supporters were found guilty of territorial discrimination could be given punishment ranging from being obliged to play behind closed doors to exclusion from the championship. Any repeated offences could be met with the above sanctions, plus a minimum €50,000 fine and an automatic loss of the disputed match. These were seen to be too heavy-handed by many in the game, and Maurizio Beretta, president of the Lega Calcio, was hoping for a change when he said, uh, We're putting the future of our teams in the hands of an irresponsible few. By that, he meant the supporters, none of whom pay the fines. While it would be an exaggeration to say that these fines might force a club to the wall, the already parlous financial state of most of Serie A's teams means that they are felt. These rules were quickly changed. In fact, they were only in effect until October 2013, when they were changed so that punishments could be handed out depending on the perception, dimension and proportionality of any offending songs or banners. If a given sector of a stadium was deemed to have at least 10-15% to 15 of spectators taking part in either a racist or territorially discriminatory song or chant, then they would fall foul of the rules. An example of this comes from Milan's match against Cagliari at the Sant'Elia. Mario Balotelli was booed by between 200 and 250 supporters, out of a total of around 2,000, so Cagliari were given a conditional closure of that part of the stadium. So, rather than closing the stadium as the previous regulation had threatened, only the stand from which the offences came from would be closed. Campanilismo is commonplace in Italy. We've already heard a little about it in the chapter about Livorno, and it derives from a very local sense of pride and rivalry and somewhat inevitably ends up as dislike for people from other towns or cities. I remember hearing a Scottish version of this, when Aberdeen supporters at Easter Road would be greeted with a ditty alluding to their romantic involvement with sheep, while Rangers, Celtic or Hearts fans would be subject to the song suggesting that they lived in less than opulent surroundings. In your Glasgow slums you're raking the buckets for something to eat. You find a dead rat and you think it's a treat in your Glasgow slums. For the Hearts version, simply substitute Glasgow with Gorgie and Bob is your uncle. Looking back, those songs aren't very nice, but are crude and simple ways of taking the piss out of the day's opponents. They aren't, however, hoping that people will die in a volcanic eruption. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, is a simplistic way of thinking about this. 
But what would Neapolitans think about the chants that are almost exclusively aimed at them? When I went down to see Napoli play, I asked them that very thing. Valentina told me, Oh, you mean the songs that pray for Vesuvius's eruption, burning and burying us all? Or like when we go to Rome, and the Romanisti hold their noses pretending that we stink, that we don't wash, that we steal, that we're all criminals? This season Roma had some stands closed for matches, so maybe something's being done. But I wouldn't like to think that it's just a smokescreen, and it's not even like they were playing against us for those matches. In my opinion, I think they're a wee bit jealous of our supporters. I'd like to say that it doesn't bother me, but that's not the case. I care because it's normally only us who are subject to this kind of behaviour. Another Napolitano, Nicola, added, They really hurt. Us in the South have always been discriminated against. They say we're the worst part of Italy. Inciting Vesuvius to kill us all isn't an irreverent or funny song. It's not taking the piss. It's much worse like making monkey noises at black players. It's unacceptable. These songs are horrible and for me, nothing but racist. I think that a lot of it comes from ignorance because now Napoli are strong again and it annoys a lot of people to see us near the top of the league. So they sing these things because they know it annoys us and it hurts us. But in reality, they don't realize what they're doing. Some supporters of other teams see the introduction of sanctions aimed at eliminating territorial discrimination as being excessive and unnecessary. The, I paid for my ticket, I'll sing what I would like, excuse, would seem to be the mentality. Within reason, that's fair, but the anti-Napoli songs are a step too far, in my opinion. Having said that, the problem wasn't of the same level, or at least the songs weren't as frequently publicised, before the FIGC introduced their new rules. And so, at least to my mind, the spike in songs of this nature are a reaction by fans who feel their freedom and rights have been steadily reduced in the past few years. It's another example of the us versus them mindset, and one that won't go quietly into the night. As Nicola told me, I just hope it all stops soon. Another crime that the authorities have imposed on supporters. Hmm, crime, how Freudian. 